Father, thank you for the ministry that Joshua is going to have to us this morning. Thank you for the gifts that you've given him. Thank you for the word that you've placed upon his heart. And Lord, I just pray that you would give him real freedom, real liberty, and real openness to share as he shares your word with us. Lord, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Gordon. It's okay if I come down here? Is that okay? I warn you, I might slowly get closer and closer to you <laughs> as I get more and more excited. So that's, you've been warned. You've been warned. Uh, I'll also warn you in advance that um, I may ask questions and wait for a response. So... There may be space for that as well. So that's just uh, a heads up to everyone. Um, thank you so much for having me and my wife Lynn here uh, with you this morning. It's a, it's a blessing for us to be able to, to worship uh, with brothers and sisters in Christ who we don't know. Um, thanks to the worship team as well for being here and being a part of this today. Um, so we do feel, feel blessed to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm... My wife and I are part of the Way Church in Vancouver, um, so I am here by the recommendation of Pastor Chris Price. Um, he's one of our lead pastors, and the reason I say that is because if I turn out to be a total flop of a guest speaker uh, who's totally unorthodox, it's entirely his fault. Um, so I'll be supplying his email address and personal phone number after the service um, so you can get in contact with him, and hopefully that's a joke. Um, to say a little bit about uh, my wife and I, we're Americans, um, we're from south of the border, but not, not really too far south. Um, I'm from Washington State originally, which is basically British Columbia. Um, very, very similar culture in many ways, um, from the climate to politics to everything else. Everyone looks like they you know, could go on a hike at a moment's notice. Uh, my wife is from Michigan, which I'm convinced is Southern Ontario, um, Euchre being one of the reasons. If you haven't heard of the card game Euchre, it's because you're not from Michigan or Ontario. Um, and then we met uh, working for a Christian missions organization called YWAM, or Youth with a Mission, uh, in Montana, which is basically Alberta. Uh, so, so we've always lived just a little south of the border. Um, and uh, we worked uh, together uh, for YWAM. Uh, I worked in their biblical studies department for about seven years because it's biblical. Um, and uh, predominantly uh, led a training seminar where we trained graduates from our Bible school to be missionary teachers. And then we took them uh, overseas uh, to teach the Bible in congregations in developing nations where they didn't have access to the kind of resources we have here. Um, so I spent a lot of time in, in India, and then uh, I led some teams to different countries in uh, West Africa as well. Um, and then my wife, she worked with our Backpackers Discipleship Training School, um, which is as cool as it sounds, um, and they would go on outreach to Nepal. And so that's a bit of our background. Now we live in Vancouver. Um, I'm working through uh, my MDiv at Regent College. Um, and Lynn uh, makes all the money that sustains us in the city of Vancouver. Um, and so praise the Lord for that. Um, and we serve with uh, the Way Church. 
So as we, as we begin this morning, I have a couple questions for us uh, to be thinking about. Uh, we're going to get into the text of Luke chapter 7, um, and I'm going to invite us to kind of live uh, in one of the stories there, invite us into that space to share that space together. Um, and so what I want to ask is, do you think there's a connection between forgiveness and love? Is there any connection between forgiveness and between love? I see that nod. Thank you. Yeah. How about forgiveness and perception, the way we see the world? Is there a connection between forgiveness and our perception of the world? Yeah. And I'm sure many people in this room could give wonderful descriptions of what those connections are. And then this last question is a bit more of a stretch, but I want to talk about today if there's a connection between forgiveness and our capacity for showing hospitality. And I'm going to talk about how there may be a connection between our understanding of our own forgiveness and how we extend hospitality. And the way we'll see that connected is kind of in a progression where our understanding of our forgiveness expands our capacity to love. Our understanding of our own forgiveness, how Christ has forgiven us, increases our own capacity to love others. And that capacity to love influences the way we see the world. Our perception of the world is changed because of the love and forgiveness of Christ. And ultimately, the way we see the world, the way we perceive the people around us, really holds the key to the hospitality that we offer. The key to hospitality is really held in our perception of the world around us. And so that's really the main point of this message, is that our perception of the world holds the key to our hospitality. And the root of that perception is the forgiveness and the love of Christ. So we're going to be living in one of my favorite uh, gospel texts today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Uh, this is the story of the anointing woman. Um, it's a beautiful story, and it's a story about a woman uh, who lays herself at the feet of Jesus, offering him as much honor as a mortal can possibly offer to the infinite God. It's a really beautiful picture. Beautiful picture. Um, and I'm hoping that as we talk about this story, uh, I can present it and get us to think about it in a brand new way. Hopefully in a way where when we look at this story of the anointing woman in Luke chapter 7, um, our perspective has changed. Um, do you mind if I tell you the story as we get started? Thank you. So uh, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him at his home. So Jesus went there and reclined. When a certain sinful woman of the city heard that Jesus was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them with her hair. She kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee, who had invited Jesus, saw what was happening, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon replied, teacher, speak up. Then Jesus told this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 denarii to one and 50 denarii to the other. Neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more for that? Simon replied, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, you've judged rightly. Then Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you did not offer me water to wash the dust off my feet. Yet she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not greet me with a kiss, but since I entered your home, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she, sh so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little only shows little love. Then he said to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. The men at the table in astonishment said to one another, who does this man think he is that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this is the word of the Lord, the story that we're going to be sitting in today. As, as we were going through that story, what stood out to people? What did you hear? I'd love to hear some thoughts. The hospitality piece. Okay. The lack, the lack of hospitality. Yeah, there's something that was missing when Jesus showed up. And we'll talk about that. What else, what else stood out to people? Yeah. There's a contrast that Jesus is drawing between Simon and between the woman. Very evident. Mm -hmm. What else stood out to people? Yeah, the prejudice. Can you expand on that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his perception of the world is clearly controlling the way that he shows hospitality to the woman and to Jesus. What else? What else do people notice? Hmm. Yeah, there's an evident love, and humility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We see the authority of Christ. Resolutely. No hesitation. 
Mm-mm. No, he doesn't. Neither does anyone else at the table. Who do you think was at the table with Jesus and Simon? Other Pharisees. Yeah, and we'll talk about that as well, what this atmosphere would have been like at the table. She was not. She was not afraid. Yeah. We begin to draw distinctions between people. There's these people and there's me. And we see that in Simon. Man, you guys could preach this message. I should sit down. <laughs> One more thought? Anyone have anything else burning? Yeah. Yeah, and you're right, and we'll talk about that as well. How typical of the Pharisees, when we think of the gospel narrative, to want to test Jesus? It's pretty typical. I could continue to do this, but you mind if we keep moving? I'll pull us into the story a bit. Uh, So looking at this story, one of the first things that people tend to ask, especially scholars, is who is this woman? It's kind of a fair place to start. She's a very central character, and she's unnamed, so she's vulnerable to how we want to name her. Her namelessness leaves her vulnerable to our defining, and we see that with Simon. Uh, the, counterpor- the counterpoints or counterparts to this story, there's examples of similar stories in the other Gospels. You hear alabaster jar, and there's other stories. Um, There's a story in Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, and John 12 that talk about a Simon, a home of a Simon, talk about an alabaster jar. Um, And what I want to start with here is to draw a distinction between Luke's narrative, um, because all these other accounts of this alabaster jar and Jesus being anointed take place in Bethany, in the home of a man named Simon the leper. And all those other stories, the one in Matthew, Mark, and John, um, and if you want those references, I can give them to you after the service, um, those stories all have the same point. It's Jesus being anointed as he's nearing Jerusalem, and the point is that at the end of each of those stories, the disciples are arguing, because why would this expensive perfume be wasted like this when it could be sold to the poor? That's the point of all of those stories. So we see in in Luke's story here, that this is different, that it's a different tradition, it's a different event that's being recorded in the Gospels, and so there's a distinction there. Uh, A lot of commentaries will title this passage, uh, A Sinful Woman Forgiven, or The Sinful Woman. Uh, You'll see that even in a lot of Bibles. It'll say the, the heading that they'll put is The Sinful Woman, or A Sinful Woman Forgiven. Um, this is, it's perhaps a fair conclusion, We see here introduced that way. We see that further affirmed by Simon the Pharisee. We see Jesus confirming forgiveness for her. Um, But this bearer of the alabaster jar, I wonder what is the intent of Luke, the author of this gospel, in telling this story? Who does he intend for her to be 
And who does Jesus perceive this woman as? So a lot of scholars and a lot of commentators title this the sinful woman. Uh, But who does Jesus see? And if he sees somebody different, why do our titles follow the words of Simon the Pharisee more than the words of Christ? Uh, I, I find it amazing how quickly the word sinner tends to control our perception. Uh, it's remarkable how for us as Christians who've encountered the forgiveness and love of Christ, this word becomes how we categorize humanity. Now hear me out before I sound completely unorthodox. The word sin is very important to us as Christians to our Christian tradition. It is a description of the state of humanity and is very important to the gospel story. Without there being a problem, the gospel story doesn't even make sense. Sin's a vital piece of the story and a very prevalent thing in all of our lives. Uh, But for over a thousand years, commentators have focused a lot of their study on what the sin of the woman is. How did she sin? What kind of a sinner was she? Was she a prostitute? People confuse her with Mary Magdalene, which she's not. There's no evidence for that in Scripture. Um, And what it comes down to is Luke leaves it ambiguous. Even in the Greek, it's ambiguous. Uh, One scholar says that perhaps the most probable translation is that she's Gentile, which is completely different than the idea of her being a prostitute or a Sabbath breaker, but what's important for us, and I think for a lot of people as they study scripture, is that if we focus the story on the woman's sin, we detract from the narrative, we detract from the point of the story, if we focus on her sin, and we begin to reshape the message. The story begins to get altered a bit. Through through this frame, This is the story of a sinful prostitute who dishonorably falls at the feet of Jesus in repentance for her sin, shaming and embarrassing herself before Simon and his guests, but then is ultimately defended and forgiven by Jesus. And there's interpretive defense for this, and you can you can draw this from the passage, but I don't think that is the is the picture or the intent of the message of this story at all. I believe that more accurately, this is the story of self-sacrificial love of a woman who enters into her Savior's humiliation. She enters into her Savior's shame. She is so appalled by the dishonor that Jesus is receiving from Simon that she covers his dishonor with her scandalous actions and then relocates the dishonor upon herself. And I have difficulty finding a better example of love shown towards Jesus in the Gospels. I really don't think there is one. A better picture of somebody showing love towards the Savior within the Gospel narratives. And this is why uh, I call her the anointing woman, not the sinful woman. There's no argument about the status of sin. We are all sinners saved by grace. But I think that the significance is in the fact that she's the anointing woman. 
And I'd love to say that I came up with that myself, but there's lots of scholars who have had that thought since Ambrose in the early church, so uh, it's nothing new under the sun. But perhaps the way we interpret this story reflects our own judgments. As I said earlier, it's amazing how we as forgiven Christians who have received the love of Jesus can allow our perception of others to be dictated not by Christ's love, but by our own judgments. And so for us, perhaps we need to remember our own forgiveness that we've received by Christ. Because our understanding of our own forgiveness, it affects our capacity to love others. And our capacity to love others influences the way we perceive the world. I think sometimes, and I say this for myself, I, you know, I'm relatively young, I'm 30 years old, um, apparently I'm not that young, we had, my wife and I, this is a tangent, um, my wife and I run a small group for our, for our church, uh, there's a lot of college students that attend our church, and we had a couple, uh, a young couple come to our small group, and uh, the next week, I saw them at church and asked how they were doing, and they came up and told me that they were going to try to look for a small group with people who were more in their own place of life. <laughs> Which is fair. I was just, wow, that was the first time I'd ever been told I was too old to be, to be uh, their small group leader. Um, so <laughs> it starts now, it doesn't change. Um, but but I've, been a, I've been a Christian all my life. And so I think it can be easy for me to become a bit of a Simon where I get to know the word really well. Um, man, I'm, in, I'm at Regent College. I'm in Christian academia. Um, and you can know things really well and forget the power of how you've been forgiven and what Christ's love has done for you. And then your perception of the world starts to change. And the way you categorize people starts to change. And the way you put up walls against people starts to change. And I can become more like Simon. So looking at this passage, in a lot of ways it seems like the woman came in when she saw what was happening to Jesus. But in verse 45, Jesus says that since I came in, Jesus talking about himself, this woman has not stopped kissing my feet since I came in. He doesn't say since the woman came in. So what's implied there is that the woman was in the room before Jesus showed up. That she was there before Jesus showed up. And we'll talk about this a bit more, um, but where they were eating, it's, it's very likely that it was in a, a more of a public space. It could have been a, in a courtyard connected to Simon's home. Um, but the the way that Simon is gathering other Pharisees to have a meeting with Jesus implies that there'll be religious discussion and that the public will be able to listen in as these religious leaders talk, kind of like a symposium. And uh, what it seems is that, as somebody mentioned, uh, a test is being set up for Jesus. A lot of scholars think this woman was already there, perhaps intending to anoint Jesus' head with uh, the oil from the alabaster jar, um, but things don't go as expected. 
And when Jesus shows up, he's not treated as she expected him to be treated. And it seems possible, I would say likely, that Simon has her there as a test. Okay, we're going to have this sinner who's a follower of Jesus here and see how this man reacts. Because if he's a prophet, he should say, why is this sinner in this room while we're eating? Because I think we all know that Jesus kind of developed a reputation among the Pharisees for uh, dining with tax collectors and sinners. That was a pretty common staple for him. And so it seems like a test is being set up. And something interesting to think about, and we see it in the, in the verses in the second part when Simon gets rebuked, is that Simon is planning to publicly embarrass Jesus. You know, if there aren't other people there, certainly with the other people at the table. He's going to refuse hospitality to Jesus and show him that he's unwelcome and embarrass him. And Jesus shows up anyway. Jesus shows up, comes into the room, doesn't receive hospitality that's culturally expected and would have been given to the other guests, and he sits down anyway. I think that's a beautiful picture of the humility of our Savior, that he would enter into a room where he's unwelcome, receiving that treatment, and he would stay, even if it's just for the one who's standing up with an alabaster jar in the corner of the room. And for myself, it makes me wonder, when Jesus, what rooms would you have me stay in where I'm not welcome, or where people might try to shame me, maybe for my own beliefs. You guys tracking with me? Is this making sense? Awesome. Uh, So the best place, so as we're kind of rethinking through this story and all the implications of it, and, and why the woman's there, what's her motivation in being in the room? Is she desperately seeking repentance and forgiveness? And what's interesting for us to examine is uh, the Greek verb that's being used to describe her as forgiven, epheontai, um, that the best translation for it is that when Jesus is talking about her sins, in verse 47, he says, they have been forgiven. Her sins have been forgiven. She's already forgiven. And so the implications here are are important. And it's that the anointing woman in this story, it seems, is already a follower of Jesus. I don't think necessarily that she ever had a personal conversation, but she has believed the message of Christ and believes she's forgiven. And Jesus makes that evident when he says, this woman, her sins have been forgiven. That's why she's showing me love. This isn't a desperate attempt to receive forgiveness. This is a forgiven woman, and it's because she has encountered my love and forgiveness that she shows me much love. And this is important for us as we examine this passage because it it helps us rethink the motivation. 
Because I think it can be very easy to just look at the passage and think this is a desperate woman seeking the forgiveness of Jesus. And so she barges into this meal, stumbles to Jesus' feet, begging for his forgiveness. But the more we look at the story, the more we see that that actually doesn't seem to be what's taking place. That she's a forgiven woman, probably wanting to offer gratitude to Jesus. But the situation that she's confronted with changes her approach. In a lot of ways, when we look at the very end, Christ says to her, your sins have been forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And I and some of the other scholars I've read think that this may be the first time Jesus has ever spoken just to her that she's somebody who's heard his teachings and come to follow him, but it's never been said directly to her. And so this affirms the reality that's already present in her life, that she is forgiven. And it, sh- it serves as reassurance as Jesus turns to protect her from the glaring eyes and the judgment of Simon and the other Pharisees. And more than that, uh, for Luke, the author, something that he's doing is he's showing uh, the messianic purpose of Christ. And Christ is doing that as well. He's showing himself as the Messiah before the Pharisees, that I have the authority to forgive sins, that I'm the herald of righteousness and the herald of Isaiah chapter 61. I'm the Messiah. And this is really important, not just for this story, but for Luke's entire gospel. A key to understanding uh, the motives of the anointing woman is the historical background uh, to, this, to this passage. Uh, there's a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Uh, it's by Kenneth Bailey, uh, a scholar who spent over 50 years in the Middle East. And he takes stories uh, like this one. He takes numerous parables of Jesus, uh, numerous stories of Jesus' interaction with women. Um, and he interprets those stories through the culture of that time in Middle Eastern culture. Uh, and he says this. He says that custom, custom required a kiss of greeting. When you're hosting guests, you would offer a kiss on the face to an equal. You'd offer a kiss on the hand to somebody who you saw as a rabbi or of more authority than yourself. Um, this meal was likely being held, um, as I said, in a more open setting where people could hear um, a lot of these banquet meals in the Gospel of Luke are similar to this idea of a, of a, suppo- a symposium, a, a Hellenistic symposium, which basically means a group of intellectuals gathering together to talk and debate thought. So he says, custom required a kiss of greeting, usually on the face. After the guests were seated on stools around the U-shaped dining couch called a triclil triclilium, that's a hard one, water and olive oil would be brought for the washing of hands and feet. Only then could the grace be offered. Uh, The Babylonian Talmud talks about how dirty hands are not able to offer grace. Finally, the guests would recline on the couch and the meal would begin. 
So it's incredibly unlikely that Simon the Pharisee would have neglected to show these critical aspects of hospitality that would be expected to the other guests. It's very unlikely that everyone who shows up would not have their feet washed, have their hands cleaned, receive a kiss of greeting. This is common. This is common practice. Something that would have been expected, and it's very unlikely that the other guests that Simon welcomed did not receive that hospitality. And we see that Jesus didn't receive that in the second portion of our story. Simon intentionally disregards Jesus. Kenneth Bailey, in his commentary on this, he remarks that no one in the room would have failed to observe this omission. No one would have failed to observe this. Simon the Pharisee is dishonoring and embarrassing Jesus before all his guests. He's making a statement to Jesus about what he thinks about him. And this could even be a statement he's making before the town. There wasn't TV back then. Word traveled fast on what was just happening within the city. This is a public shaming of Jesus. Can you think of the last time that you were really embarrassed? I don't know about y'all, but I, uh, I try to avoid embarrassment like anything. Um, I don't like being embarrassed. And uh, if you can think of that, can you think about the last time that you were publicly shamed, that somebody sought out to embarrass you or shame you? That's harder for me. I have a hard time thinking of that. If I'm trying to think of a scenario for myself that would be similar to what Jesus is experiencing, it would probably be if uh, the professors at my university, at Regent College, invited me over. One of them invited me to his home for dinner, and I sat at the meal with the other professors, and the whole time they just made fun of how little Greek I knew. That's kind of the best comparison. That, that didn't happen. No need to pity me. The professors are great at Regent. They would not do that. But that, that comes to mind for me. It's like, oh, they have intentionally invited me to this to embarrass and shame me. They're making a statement about me. And that's what's taking place to Jesus. And he sits down with them to eat. And so then you have the anointing woman who most likely planned to anoint Jesus' feet. And then she sees that all this hospitality that would have been expected is not offered to Jesus. He doesn't get it. She doesn't have a towel or water to wash his feet. If it was offered, if she had asked for it, I'm sure it wouldn't be given. That would contradict Simon's intentions in this moment. And so she uses what she has. She weeps for the treatment of her Savior, and then she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair and anoints his feet with the perfume. It's really a strong picture of devotion to Christ, stepping into the gap and honoring him in the midst of him receiving dishonor. And in doing so, what takes place is the focus shifts from what Jesus hasn't received and the shame upon him to the dishonorable actions of the woman and what she's doing. 
culturally, it's inappropriate for a woman to touch a man in public, especially who's a stranger. Uh, the uncovering of hair is also inappropriate. Um, I was reading, I can't remember which source it was, but it was talking about how uh, the wife of a high priest uh, was asked how she was so favored and holy. And she said in response that it's because the inside of her home, the beams of her house haven't even seen the locks of her hair. She keeps her hair covered even in her own home. She doesn't uncover her, her hair. And the uncovering of hair in uh, Jewish Midrash was a worthy of divorce to uncover your hair in public. And what we see here is this action is actually not merely practical. It's not really practical to use your hair to clean something. I don't know if anyone's tried, but I mean, the end of your clothing would probably be more effective. Um, but it's really a statement of devotion towards Christ and loyalty towards him. It's a statement of loyalty. So all eyes turn to her, and what happens is Jesus confronts Simon on his own judgments. Simon, I've got something to say to you. And then he shares that parable of the man who lent money to two people. And we don't need to talk about that in much detail. Uh, it's a pretty straightforward, straightforward parable. Ironically, a lot of the parables aren't so straightforward. And we know that the point is that the one who's been forgiven more loves more. And I don't think Jesus is trying to uh, show the weights and measures who's sinned more. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that the more we recognize how forgiven we are, the greater our capacity to love others and the greater love we can extend. Uh, Michael Walter, who has a commentary on Luke, he doesn't even want to compare Simon to the man who had his small debt forgiven. He doesn't even think that's a good comparison. He's like, you can't compare Simon to the guy with the small debts in the parable because Jesus doesn't accuse Simon of doing little. He accuses Simon of doing nothing. Like Simon does nothing for Jesus. And it's because of Simon's dishonorable, dishonorable behavior that the anointing woman is compelled to redeem the situation and to honor Jesus. And what this comes back to is that our understanding of our own forgiveness affects our capacity to love others. Simon didn't think he needed forgiveness. Not only that, but he hadn't encountered the love of the Messiah. Now, I don't want us to be too harsh on him because I do believe he was a follower of God. This man, is, he's a religious leader. He's a follower of Yahweh. In his mind, he thinks he knows what it means to follow Yahweh. He thinks he knows what it means to follow Yahweh. And I believe that even as a Pharisee, he wants to do that well. But his perception is totally wrong to the reality of what the Messiah wants. And because of that, he has not encountered the Messiah's love. Simon's understanding of his own forgiveness affects not only how he would extend love to others, but his perception of the world around him 
and how he ought to relate to it. This perception was manifested in the hospitality he showed to Jesus and his judgment of the woman in his home. In contrast, the anointing woman, out of her understanding of her own forgiveness, had a capacity to love that was bold enough to step into a position of vulnerability and extend hospitality to Jesus in an incredible act of love. Her perception of the world had been transformed by her understanding of her own forgiveness, which empowered her to love boldly. The anointing woman's contrast with Simon is very evident, but something else we can see from this passage is her tears contrast Peter's tears, who wept because he had denied Jesus, and her kiss contrasts Judas's kiss, who kissed Jesus to betray him. It's a really powerful, powerful story. She was willing to bear the fury of man's wrath and humiliation, knowing Christ was her only defense. And Christ came to her defense. Christ turns the tables on the meeting, is what he does. In answering Simon's thoughts, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then he tells Simon a parable. What has he done? He's just made himself the rabbi at the table. He's flipped the table around. And then what does he do? He does something that only God himself can do, and he forgives sins. Last night, I took my notes and did what every smart person who's going to give a sermon should do, handed them to my wife and said, fix it. Um, and so she read through it and was very kind. She's a much better editor than me. Um, she basically writes my papers. Don't tell the college that. Um, but one thing we talked about is how hospitality creates space for God to work that when we show hospitality to other people, when we invite people in, when we create space that is safe, where people feel loved and welcome, that it invites God to move. It invites God to move. And we see Jesus step into a space where that's not created. The woman makes it happen, and Jesus moves in their midst. And so I have just three thoughts for application as we think about this passage. And then I'll tell the story one more time so we can sit in it one more time. Um, and I'll invite the worship team to come up when I tell the, when I tell the story. But uh, three, three points of application that I have. The first thing that I hope we walk away with from this is that our perception of biblical texts and characters is changed a bit. And that we recognize that maybe our perspective doesn't reflect the perspective of Christ or the intention even of the biblical authors. That sometimes the way we approach a story doesn't necessarily reflect the intention that Christ has within that story. And I hope that's seen in this being the story about the anointing woman. More than just a sinner who's been forgiven. Somebody who's showing radical love to Jesus.
Second, I really think there's an important significance for us understanding our own forgiveness in Christ. We can't forget it. We can't be a Simon. doesn't matter how old we are, 30, 60, 90. doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian, 30 years, 10 years, 50 years. Because our understanding of our own forgiveness, our adoration of Christ for what he's done for us, really affects the way we view the world and our capacity to love others, even when they disagree with us. Uh, A mentor used to tell me that our ability to extend grace to other people is directly related to our ability to receive grace from God for ourselves. That to the extent that we recognize the grace and love of God in our own lives, that that will affect our ability to extend that to other people. And the last thing comes back to hospitality, and it's how our perception of the world holds the key to our hospitality. Our perception of the world, how we see the world, holds the key to our houses, our cupboards, our cars, our bank accounts. How we see the world holds the key to our hospitality. Uh, We live in a time right now, coming out of COVID, a time that was filled with fear and isolation. We live in a time presently filled with anger and people boxing themselves into ideological camps. These are my opinions. If you don't agree with them, I don't want to talk to you. And we're seeing that this is even perpetuated through social media, that we're fed and categorized into camps even more. And so conversations that one would hope could be easy are now really difficult. And it, it can almost feel at times that there is anger and such malcontent boiled up in people that you could say something and someone could just snap at you. Like, this is my opportunity. I've been waiting for it. We live in a very tense time. And we're coming out of a time where people have been very isolated. And we live in an age where people are very afraid of one another. Like, people are just afraid of one another. They don't say it, but they are. People are afraid of getting sick. People are afraid of other people's opinions. And I'm not trying to belittle people who are immune compromised or have situations that that have led them to have really genuine, genuine concerns about COVID. This is not a political conversation. The, The heart of this conversation is that Lynn and I live in one of the safest and probably most wealthy neighborhoods in the city of Vancouver, near UBC's campus, and I've never seen so many cameras on people's houses. Like, people's houses are locked down, they got cameras on the doorbell, they got cameras on the corners of the house, and it's like, wow, God, the more wealth we accumulate, it's like the goal of being wealthy is to move ourselves further away from people and to create a safer space for ourselves. And I really believe that in the time that we're living, what's going to be the best witness for the gospel is the way we show hospitality to other people. That really, I think, is our biggest takeaway. But the way we extend hospitality to other people, the way and who we choose to invite into our homes and into our space, 
is going to be really dictated by how much we have encountered God's love and forgiveness in our own life. Because that's going to control the way that we see the world and how we hold the world off. And for my wife and I, for Lynn and I, um, hospitality for us has been the way that we live out the gospel. For us, that's just a practical way to live out the gospel. That's one way that we kind of keep ourselves on track, and it's not easy. Um, We made a choice. We transitioned to Vancouver uh, out of being missionaries uh, with YWAM. And I don't know if you guys know this, but missionaries make a ton of money, just tons of money. Like, never have to worry about money. Um, That's not true. So we transitioned out of YWAM. So we we left our financial support. We told our donors give to people who are actively in missions. Um, And then we came to Vancouver uh, with the intent of getting a two-bedroom place um, so that we could always have a room available for people to stay in. And that is a pretty crazy thing to do in the city of Vancouver. Um, I'm not trying to boast. I'm just giving an example. uh, Because really, the Lord provided a job for Lynn and provided for us to have the capacity to do that. Um, because people are like, you have a second room in, in your place and nobody's paying you rent for it? Like, what are you doing? Um, because it is expensive to live in that city. Um, and we have hosted, over the course of even, over the course of the pandemic, and our situation, uh, just provided the opportunity for us to be able to host people. Um, and we've hosted friends of friends. We've hosted moms of friends. Uh, We've hosted people that we didn't know um, or didn't know well. We've hosted girlfriends of friends who then became ex-girlfriends of friends. (laughs) And then we hosted the next girlfriend of that friend who became the fiance and wife of that friend. Um, So we've been able to walk through people with interesting, through interesting things. Um, But for us, hospitality is just a really important picture of how we work out the gospel in our lives. And it's like, people might not want to have a conversation with you about Jesus, but I bet they'll be open to having a meal. And we can create that space. Um, so I would, I would love it for all of us as we leave today and we think of this story to think of how our own forgiveness, and our own love that we've received from Christ, how that's being lived out. And I would challenge us to specifically look at how we're living that out through hospitality. Because I think that's a powerful thing. And it's a vulnerable thing. The reality is it's vulnerable. We have invited people to our house for our small group that we have never met before. I invited one person and immediately afterward walked away and said, I just gave a total stranger my address. Um, But it's been really powerful and impactful for people. And it's been a way for us to to live out the kingdom. All right, I want to invite the worship team to come up. I'm just going to tell the story one more time. And uh, and that'll that'll be my conclusion. And then the worship team can lead us into worship and close us in prayer. But think letting scripture speak for itself is really powerful and the best place to leave it. So one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home 
and reclined. When a certain sinful woman of the city learned that Jesus was dining there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw what was happening, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered Simon's thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon replied, teacher, speak up. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 denarii to one and 50 denarii to the other. Neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more for that? Simon replied, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said, you have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? When I entered your home, you did not offer me water to wash the dust off my feet. Yet she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not greet me with a kiss, but since I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little only shows little love. Then he said to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. The men at the table were astonished and said to one another, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. <laughs> 